This episode of Horinki Radio is proudly brought to you by Accutron and their high-flying SpaceView 2020 and its cutting-edge electrostatic movement. Available now at AccutronWatch.com. Stay tuned later in the show for the latest on the brand's iconic SpaceView timepiece. Hey, it's me, James Stacey, and today we've got an extra special episode hot on the heels of the recent launch of Hodinkee Pre-Owned, and in honor of this big move for the shop, we have two very special guests. Please be nice in the comments, because I love my job. First up, he's Hodinkee's founder and executive chairman, a man who's given me endless opportunities, as well as forming the impetus for both this podcast and all things Hodinkee. If it's watches, cars, or golf, he's likely ahead of the game. It's Ben Clymer. Hey, Ben. A pleasure to have you back on the show. Hey, James. How you doing, man? Yeah, super good. Super good. Yeah, so you like your job, huh? <laughs> it's good. I like it quite a bit. I'll, uh... <laughs> okay, noted. We'll see how this goes. Yeah. I'll make sure all the questions are, you know, right down the middle, nice and easy. <laughs> and rounding out this motley crew of totally equal-level Hodinkee employees, <laughs> he's Hodinkee's chief commercial officer, a consummate outdoorsman, and an all-around A-plus kind of fellow. It's Russell Kelly. How you doing, Russell? I'm doing well, James. Uh, good to see you. Good to see you, Ben. Always a pleasure to spend some time with you guys. Yeah, you too, man. It's been a busy week for the site and everything with the launch of pre-owned. How's that going so far? Yeah, I mean, it's going great. We spent a lot of time getting ready for this, as you can imagine. There's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes that that you don't see on the website, that you don't see, you know, on social media. It's uh, it's all the back end work that that goes into bringing a, a website to life. It's all of the human work that goes into making sure there's great photography and great writing and you know a great design and site experience and and all that's really come together over the last few months and we're super happy to to see it uh, out in the world. In the last uh, couple of years, Hodinkee has you know bought and started to sort of integrate with Crown and Caliber and. With that, and they're kind of champions of the pre-owned world. That's that's the the bread and butter. That's their arguably the market that they've defined for many years. What's the reason to go Hodinkee for pre-owned rather than just maintaining the the kind of crown and caliber as as it's been going? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for us, it's like the Hodinkee world is 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 a really special one, and that's not to say other worlds are not special. It just means that like our little narrow corner of watch collecting is is different than than other folks. And I think what's really fascinating about our business versus the the crown and caliber business is that there's really very little overlap in terms of who the audience is. And in fact, we 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 did an audience overlap survey, and the, the number is quite small, kind of like shockingly small. Huh. And I think what what we really wanted to kind of get to with Hodinkee pre-owned is what Crown and Caliber was able to do and, and still does down in Atlanta is absolutely market leading. And I think, you know, at least I hope anyway, that the video that we created at least gave a nod to all that goes into it. But once you see what Crown and Caliber and Hodinkee does to, to pre-owned watches before it even goes on the site is absolutely market leading. And it makes you want to never buy a pre-owned watch from anybody else. And I said that the first time I went down there before we were in business together, uh, Toby Bateman, our CEO said the same thing. It really is, it is that good. And I think what we wanted to do is take the Hodinkee sensibility of photography, creative, you know, curation and kind of market selection and apply that to the absolutely market leading kind of class of, of what happens down in Atlanta. And that is an operational kind of efficiency that you you can't even imagine. I mean, it's really, you know, Russell's down there now every day. It's amazing. Well, all that, all that we do to, to watch this before they go up on the site. 
And so, you know, you'll see the Rolexes, you'll see, you know, the watches that, that you've seen on Crown and Caliber, but you'll also see some really special things on Hodinkee Pre-Owned. You've seen a few 5711s, you've seen some 15202s, you've seen some things that are markedly more expensive than you might find on Crown and Caliber or other platforms. And that's because, you know, we, we pay active attention to what our audience actually wants and what people want right now, for better or worse, or watches like that. They want to own a Royal Oak. They want to own a Nautilus. They want to own steel Daytonas, et cetera. That's not to say they don't also want to own brand new Speedmasters and brand new Bulgaris, et cetera. But, you know, we wanted to kind of give people exactly what they want. And I think, you know, Hodinkee has always been about listening really actively, although some might not agree with us, and I'm sure that'll exist on social media, about really giving people exactly what they want. And so we hear, we heard people. People want these watches. We want to give them the ability to purchase those watches with the same type of comfort and ease that they've been able to buy anything from us since, since day one. Yeah, that's it. And I think that I think the important thing to note here is our launch yesterday, no matter how big the endeavor is just a first step. You know, I think we have a lot of plans around this category and we have a lot of plans to continue to iterate on it, to keep offering something, as Ben said, something extremely market leading, something that's unique, something that that sets us apart and something that creates an experience that's world class. As a guy who's spent 25 years in the watch industry. And I've been as you, James, and as you've been in and out of watch manufacturers all that time, I've been, you know, to so many, I've seen so many workshops. It's mind blowing to see what's been created here in Atlanta and, and to see, I was was in the shop this morning. It's one of my favorite things to do when I come in here in the mornings, uh, get a cup of coffee and go to the shop and say hi to all the watchmakers and technicians and refinishers and, and everything that we have going on in the service operations department. Uh, it's just, it's, you know, it's truly an art and it's an art that's been curated here in Atlanta and coupled with an operational process that's second to none. It's just, it's mind blowing. It's uh, it's really great to see. Yeah, it's definitely been a, been a big push, but I am interested in, in how you guys see pre-owned Moving forward, I mean, pre-owned has always been part of the watch retail experience. You know, maybe it was a little case way off in the corner of the retailer that you went to that was consignment. Maybe it was a couple years later, a sales forum. Maybe a few years after that, it was something like a crown and caliber. And and now with that expanding, where do you guys see pre-owned as playing a part in the future of kind of watch retail, which is re- has really been tumultuous in the last few years. That's a good question, James. I mean, I think I, I've been kind of long a fan of the, the pre-owned business. And I think if you if you look at other verticals, like let's look at cars, which I know, you know, many of us on this call, all of us on this call, you know, pay a lot of attention to. You know, if you look at uh, when you buy a new BMW 3 Series and you want the brand new 2021 or 2022 model, you go into the BMW dealer in whatever town you live in and you say, hey, I want to trade in my old car. And it can be a BMW or it can be an Audi or a Mercedes or a Toyota or whatever you want. And they're going to give you a market price. And the offer might be a little bit lower than if you're going to, tra- you know, sell it to your friend or your enemy or whatever you choose. But it, it is so easy and so kind of comfortable. And you say, you know what? Okay, I want the brand new car. They're going to offer me X. I know they're going to put X plus Y percent on it and they're going to make a little bit of money because this is a business, but that's okay. And you, you pay for that kind of comfort and knowing that you're getting something that is is really kind of you know simple and easy. And a, an interesting fact that I've, I've mentioned for years and years in the watch world is there's a Ferrari dealer in Manhattan, not surprising, right? That there are, there are a lot of wealthy people there. They sell more certified pre-owned Ferraris than new Ferraris every single year. And I think that that kind of says it all, or that, that says a lot of what this conversation is about. And it's not to say that we ever intend to sell more pre-owned watches than new, or that's not even part of the equation. It's just about offering a service that people want. And I think there's this 
particular type of misalignment or misunderstanding by the Swiss watch industry that has been under this, uh, this, this assumption that people can continue to buy and buy and buy, consume, consume, consume new watches every year over and over again without ever having to sell them. And I think there, there's not another vertical in this space that is that way. If you, I'm a golfer, as, as James mentioned. Like, if you want to buy the new Callaway driver, you can trade in your old Callaway driver. It's not that you're going to get pennies on the dollar, but like you can still do it. You know, that like somebody even, you know, somebody is there to make that happen. Certainly available in cars and in most equipment of of any material value that that is an option and up until very recently in watches that really wasn't and i think we started to really pay attention to it a few years ago and we realized that you know we think there's a long way to go here and there's some great players in there already you know the watchbox guys the chrono 24 guys and we know them like they're, they're doing they're doing good stuff in their own way but we felt that we could put our own spin on things in the same way that we put our own spin on editorial, you know, 10 years ago or 12 years ago, or on our own spin on, on new watches six, seven years ago. We wanted to put our own spin on pre-owned and really help identify, you know, kind of the way that we think we can push the entire industry forward by doing pre-owned in a different way. And as Russell just mentioned, like what you saw on the site this week is wonderful and we're immensely proud of it. But like, this is truly just step one. This is table stakes. Like, let's get this thing up there. And you're going to see some really neat and I think really innovative stuff coming from from pre-owned in, in the next you know six months or so to speak to something ben said which i think is really important is that this idea of pre-owned on hodinky started as a service and it started with us talking about this two three years ago when i joined the company on how can we offer our customers our readers a trustworthy way to sell their watch you know and it really started as okay how can we give people a platform to sell their watch how can we give people a platform to trade in their watch and we started talking to Crown and Caliber as far back as, as 2019 with the idea that we could have them help us to create a trade-in platform without the need to even sell pre-owned on our site. But as we learned more and as we got deeper into it, we found out, well, why, why wouldn't we? You know, I think that as we know that there are challenges in supply in the Swiss watch industry, German watch industry, fine watchmaking industries, and this helps us stabilize supply as well. I mean, that's that's just one way to look at it. For sure. And I, I think it's an interesting thing to bring up that, at least from my perspective, pre-owned has been core to my ability to be a, an active kind of watch nerd because it takes away that top layer of that you pay at retail. If you want to be the first in line for something, I'm never really at the first in line type. But with my watches, I mean, a lot of what I've owned has been pre-owned, whether it's it's bought and sold through something like a Crown and Caliber or through private sales. And, and I think it's a crucial aspect for, in some ways, keeping the market kind of honest. But if you take it a step beyond that, the, the Ferrari analogy that Ben made is interesting because the reason I'm going to assume that one of the reasons the Manhattan Ferrari dealer sells so many pre-owned is it can be really hard to buy a brand new Ferrari. If you don't want a Roma right now, good luck getting an SF90 or, or getting uh, an A12 or something like that. These are difficult cars to buy. They typically take allotments that are kind of scheduled way out and, and people vie for them and, and they buy other cars to get in line for their allotment. And we see some of this kind of... There's two sides to look at it. One, that's the way the business operates. So complaining about it's kind of a waste of time. But also there's a lot of people who complain about this aspect of the watch world, of buying watches in 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 and around the brand new retail. Is It can be difficult. I mean, it's not a world that Hodinkee dips into with the dealer markups and, and a lot of like, uh, you know, kind of convoluted practices to see who gets what watch and when and, and that sort of thing. But I, I do think it's an interesting thing that the way that pre-owned kind of has to exist as a methodology for a certain type of buyer who who isn't going to necessarily buy enough from their local retailer 
to get the slots of what they might want. And then if you go to the gray market, which I think is different than pre-owned, we can agree, you might be paying three, four, five times the the retail price of the watch to get to get your shoe in the door. And, and it's kind of a different uh, different offering. Does it? I mean, does that weigh into where you guys think this is serving the the general Hodinkee audience? Yeah, I mean, I think from from my vantage point, like the the market just is, and like you know whether you agree with the market or not, like that that's kind of moot, right? Like the, the, the just it just is. If you want a Daytona, like the, the market price is, is certainly more than retail, Aquanaut, Nautilus, etc. That doesn't make it right or wrong. But what you know, our thinking here is like the, this market is 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 just a, a simple reality. And would you rather you know work with somebody that has direct relationships with all these brands to say, yes, this watch is certified real, guaranteed, you know, we, we guarantee that. Um, and, you know, coming from people that you know and trust, or would, would you rather buy this product from somebody that, that you don't know and trust? And that has always been our thinking behind everything commercial. And I, I think it's important to note that, you know, we often survey our audience in, in a myriad of ways. And the number one request from Hodinkee from day one, and I mean, literally day one, like 2009 type of stuff has been for Hodinkee to sell more things. And I think, you know, when somebody is looking at a pre-owned watch or, you know, a steel Daytona or whatever, if they can't walk into the Rolex boutique and get it, they want to buy it from somebody that, that they trust. And I think it's really important that like this is viewed as a service, which it really is. And yes, of course we make dollars and cents doing it. Like this is a business and nobody would ever try to say it's not. And that's okay. And I think you can serve somebody that way. And you can still make make money doing it. It doesn't have to be one or the other. There's no such thing as like a simple binary kind of thought process on on business or other. And so, yeah, I mean, I think this is just a, a simple reaction to a market that just is. And that's not necessarily predicated by watches selling 3X, 4X, whatever, above these, uh, you know, above retail. Like, we're not the people making the money there. I can assure you of that, you know? And I think that's really important to note. It's not like you're a dealer who is, is taking this stuff at wholesale and then charging 3X. Like, that is untoward for sure. And we are not doing that. We are simply reacting to the simple economics of a market. And when you think of it that way, it's like, you know, again, I mean, I was, I did a call last night with some professional athletes actually. And one of the questions was, why doesn't Patek just charge $65,000 for an $18,000 Aquanaut? Fair question. And I said, no, that is a fair question, <laughs> Very right? Fair. And, you know, I mean, and it's like, look, that's the market price for, for whatever, 5167. Yeah. And it's, that, that is not, in fact, like that wouldn't, that wouldn't make the market more efficient. Like that really wouldn't. Like the product is what it is. And the, pre, the people who make the product are telling us what they think the market for that product should be. You have to heed that that advice. You have to heed that guidance. If Patek just tripled the price of the Aquanaut, like that would turn people off in another way because people like Jack Forrester, for example, or anybody on this call would look at an Aquanaut and then compare it to a $60,000 other Patek or Longa Vacheron AP and say, this doesn't make any sense, like from a technical perspective. And so, you know, it, it's it's really easy to blame Rolex and Patek and all these brands for for the hype and for for this crazy market. But they're not the people making the money after retail at all. We know that. And I think it's hard for people to kind of like really fathom that, but that really is the case. And it really is a reaction to the market that exists. And again, it's not good or bad. It just is. And I think it's important for people to just understand that instead of kind of bickering about, oh, what should be, what shouldn't be, who should play in it, who shouldn't. This just is. And if people want to buy a pre-owned Rolex or AP or Patek or Omega or Vacheron or anything from us, we know that we're going to deliver something that is really trustworthy. And I think that that's important in this world. Yeah. And I think that another thing that's super important to mention is that while, you know, we're working to curate, you know, super high end, super special things that are selling at, at crazy prices, we're also working really, really hard to make sure that there's an assortment of product on the pre-owned site, as well as the new listings as well, that are approachable in price and to give you 
options. You know, you have an option to come in and buy an Omega Speedmaster reduced, uh, you know, in pre-owned. You have an option to buy an 1861 Speedmaster in pre-owned, and you have an option to buy a 3861 Speedmaster brand new from us. You know, the options are there for you. And I think also importantly about pre-owned is that you have the opportunity to find that watch that maybe you missed out on a few years ago. Maybe there's a limited edition that you missed or, uh, you know, that that Japanese racing dial Speedmaster that you wish you'd gotten. And lo and behold, there's one on Hodinkee. I mean, that's the cool thing is that there's always those watches that we all wish we had bought way back when. Right. And this is, this is the opportunity to revisit those, you know, Russell, you racing dial guy too, the Japan 04 LE. Love that watch. Yeah, that's that's probably my favorite of the modern speedies. I've liked those for a long time. Those are really sweet. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see, Ben, for years you ran the entirety of Hodinkee, but certainly you shaped our editorial practice. And Russell, for at least a few years, you've been shaping the shop's kind of commercial practice and Hodinkee's commercial practice. How do you think the two are blending? I, you know, I think this is a popular topic among our our audience and, and certainly among Hodinkee staff and, and really anyone who likes what we do and is, and is in our vibe. How do you think the two are blending and where do you think that's going, you know, in the future? Yeah, I mean, I think from, from our vantage point and, you know, even though I went to journalism school, like we, we've always been commercially minded in the sense that like we think we can deliver products in a way that is that comes from a different perspective than everyone else. And that's not to disparage any other retailer. You know, like I, I love the watches, the Switzerland guys, the Wimpy guys, like they're, they're all good people. They all serve a purpose. But Houdinki is different. And I think the way that we approach editorial and commerce and how they blend together is different. And so everything we do has a vantage point. And I think everything that you see on, you know, Nick Marino's side of the house, who is our SVP of content, and Russell Kelly's side of the house has a consistent point of view. And what I mean by that is these are products that we really believe in. And I think, you know, that was really difficult to understand in the early days of, of our commercial venture in 2017 or so. But now I think people understand it. Like if we believe in a particular product from Omega or Longines, we'd be happy to write about it and we'd be happy to sell it because we really believe in it. And it's as simple as that. And again, I think there's this really kind of really, really rudimentary understand or misunderstanding rather of like, okay, are people good or bad? Are they Is it good or evil, right? And it's like, that, that is not at all how people are. It's not at all how businesses are. And like Hodinkee can be a growing business and also provide an authentic, earnest service to people that people can trust. And I think, you know, Jack Forrester, for example, I often say like, even if we told him what to do, it's not like he'd do it anyway. You know what I mean? And I think that that is true for, for most of our writers. It's like, we, we, first of all, we would never, if any of you know me or Russell or Nick or anybody, we would never tell our guys what to write ever. They can do whatever they want. Like that's the whole point of having you guys on staff. But I think for us, it's about saying, okay, we believe in these products on the commercial side we believe in these products on the editorial side and let's support the people that deserve being supported i think that's really it and we want to make it easy for you to find what you're looking for we want to make it easy for you to sell your watch if you want to sell your watch we want to make it easy for you to learn about watches even if you can't purchase them now or maybe you want to purchase them in the future we want to make it easy for you we want to make it better we want to make the experience good and i think you know, as, you know, as our editorial and our, and our commercial, you know, mutual sides of the houses start to come together, it's, it's in an effort to make it easier for you because it is, it, it can be a frustrating experience to read about something and want to go consider purchasing the watch. It makes it, it's really hard sometimes if you don't make that direct connection. And so in that sense, it's, uh, it's all in an effort to make a, a, an overall better experience for people. This week's episode is brought to you by Accutron and the launch of their newest addition to the Space View 2020 collection. 
60 years on from the original Accutron, the Spaceview 2020 takes its name from the open dial Accutron that inspired a generation of watch lovers to think differently about what a fine timepiece could be. With a 43.5mm steel case housing Accutron's proprietary electrostatic movement, the Spaceview is forward-thinking watchmaking combined with the latest in microengineering. Sporting a bright and fully skeletonized dial, the Spaceview 2020's movement is the star of the show, with two electrostatic motors ensuring accuracy and a smooth sweep seconds hand. Finished in its iconic green colorway, for the first time, the Spaceview 2020 is now paired with a matching matte green American alligator strap. This striking combination is available for pre-order at AccutronWatch.com. A big thanks to Accutron for supporting Hoodinky Radio. Now, let's get back to the show. So I think with some of the pre-owned conversation kind of managed in the last few minutes, I, I think people would like to get to know both of you a little better. Certainly, Russell, you a little better. I think this is your first time on Hoodinky Radio, certainly with me at the controls here. As a chief commercial officer, what is kind of within your purview? What do, what do you get to you know, drop the hammer on every now and then. Yeah. I mean, you know, my background is on the brand side and watches. I think maybe, maybe people know, maybe they don't, but I've spent, you know, a career on, uh, working for watch brands and primarily, uh, you know, on the commercial side of watch brands. And so, you know, I bring that industry experience and that watch knowledge and watch interest to the Hoodinky shop and everything that we do there. I'm in charge of everything that we sell, except for advertising. I guess that's the best way to put it for the most part. So in that sense, the watches we sell, the accessories we sell, uh, and, uh, you know, everything in between, to be fair, I have a fantastic team that I work with that's uh, both on the new side, sourcing great products and bringing those to life, to the merchandising team on the pre-owned side that is really doing a fantastic job of, you know, keeping track of market value, market rates, and being able to procure products at, at a fair price to the customer and you, you name it. I mean, I think it's just, a, again, a great, great team across the board here at Hoodinky that helps us to bring these products and these these cool things to the audience. Let's see, what do I get to do super fun, you know? If we decide we want to make a, you know, want to make a strap that's a certain color, great, we do it. If we decide we want to make a watch pouch that's named after one of our employees, great, we do that too. You know, it's like, I think it's fun to develop products. It's great to, um, you know, work with watch brands to to help them understand kind of the the value and the reach that Hoodinky has within the community. And that being, you know, one of, you know, taking the approach that, you know, we really want to, again, offer a range of products that meets people where they are in their collecting journey and in their watch enthusiasm uh, and, and, and overall support that through, through an overall product offering that represents that. Yeah. And, I, and I'm interested, you know, you, you and I know each other fairly well. Um, but, w- you know, if you were to describe kind of your, your personal love of watches, what, what sort of watches are we talking about? And how, 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 does that ever directly inform what goes in the shop? Or do you have to kind of take a, a kind of wider perspective on, on what people might want to be buying? Well, <laughs> to be fair, if I were uh, choosing only the watches I like to wear uh, and, and sourcing those for the Hodinky shop, they would be all black dial sports watches. So that wouldn't be very interesting. So (laughs) I I have to, you know, I have to have my team like gut check my initial feedback on stuff, but no, I think for me, what I like to wear, I like, you know, you mentioned earlier that I'm uh, an outdoor enthusiast and, and I spend a lot of time doing outdoor stuff and riding bikes and running and 
rock climbing, you name it. And so most of the watches I have are pretty rugged. I certainly have some, some beautiful dress watches as well, but for the most part, what I put on my wrist every day is something that can, you know, can kind of do anything, uh, whether it's a Speedmaster or, or a Tudor Black Bay or you name it across the board. I'm, I'm pretty rough on my stuff. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the best way to be, especially with sport watches for sure. Yeah. Uh, Ben, I'm I'm curious because if I'm honest, I don't fully know under your current role as executive chairman, what does that mean? What do you do? That's a really good question, James. That's a question I ask myself every day. It's a question my parents ask me all the time, actually. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, I think my, my role is is to to do the stuff that, that, frankly, only I can do. And granted, there's not that much of it anymore. But I, I think, you know, th- there's nobody know, that knows this business better than I, if I may say. And I think, you know, with, with Toby coming in and, and obviously Russell assuming a, a lot of responsibility and Ennery and, and Rob and Trisha and everybody on our executive team, Carlos, you know, it really is just kind of being the guy that gut checks a lot of stuff. And, and what I mean by that is like, like, does this feel right? And would Ben of 2011 have done this? Would Ben of 2008 done this? Mm-hmm. And to be clear, Ben in 2008 wouldn't have done anything because he didn't even know what a watch was, basically. And certainly had no business sense and, and no any sense. But my role is really to be, you know, the guy that, that makes sure that, that things continue to feel good. And, and you know, from an editorial perspective, Nick Marino, who's our SVP of content, has done an amazing job kind of varying what content looks like uh, for Hodinkee. And I'm, I'm really proud of all the stuff that he's done and what we've done. I mean, it really is... It's it's completely different. You know, I think Hodinkee a year ago was very much kind of, I think we were the best at it, but we were doing what everyone else was doing. And what fun is that? You know, and that has never been Hodinkee. And I think if there's one thing I can say, it's like we always have led, you know, the conversation around what content can, can be in the watch world for sure. And I think that that remains true today. Working with Nick on that, you know, thinking long term, what Hodinkee means in, in five years and 10 years and in six months, et cetera. The integration with the guys in Atlanta, guys and gals in Atlanta is a big part of my role. So really just kind of, you know, being, being the guy on the couch, so to speak, uh, and, you know, really making sure that, that people feel good about, about what Hodinkee is and, and where we're headed. For sure. And, you know, you mentioned uh, 2011 and 2008, Ben. If you could go back and offer one piece of advice that your former self would actually accept. Yeah. I, I like this question, but I know that if I went back and told myself something 10 years ago, that 10 years ago would, pro- would say something mean and move on. Let, let's say you would take your advice. What kind of advice would you send back to uh, an early Hodinkee, Ben? Yeah, the, the advice that, that I would give is is find good partners earlier. And I, I think many of you, I mean, you guys certainly know because you're here now, but you know, I, I was kind of out there on my own until not that long ago. The addition of Enrique Acosta, who's our chief brand officer, certainly Russell, and no question about that. Uh, Toby, of course, investors. You know, that that really is what has allowed Hodinkee to become what it is today. And up until 2014 or 15 or so, it was really me. It was me, Stephen and Will and, and Ashley and a few folks, Jack, Kari, who joined us, you know, early in 2015. But it was really, it was it was not, you know, I was always ambitious with Hodinkee and, and in other ways as well, but I didn't really understand what having, you know, real peers could mean to to the business and also mean to me. And it would allow me to focus on the stuff that I'm good at, not focus on the stuff that I'm not good at. And yes, there's a lot of it. You know, and just I would say, hey, like you should consider bringing on investors, bringing on partners, bringing on peers much sooner than than you would have or than you did. Uh, and, you know, I, I tend to think of like, man, had we had we done this, had we raised money earlier, had we done all this stuff earlier? 
how far could we really be? And I think, you know, the, the question that, that I often say to, to younger folks now or people that are launching businesses now is kind of like, why not me? You know what I mean? And I think, you know, early, early days, I never would have said that we could be an Omega dealer or like, you know, why not? Like, you know, we could never have changed the face of what watches mean to people, et cetera. And now it's like, well, well, why not me? You know, I'm just as capable as anybody else. Our team is certainly more capable than most. Let's give it a shot, you know? And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but at least we tried. And so, you know, I think, you know, I, again, I, I had, I have no regrets really about a lot of the stuff that, that we did in the early days, I just would have done it all sooner. Yeah. And what, what would you say held you back? Yeah. I mean, a little bit of it was, I, I don't, I, I'm not even going to say it was fear. I'm not going to feign that I was afraid of this. I really wasn't. It was just, I didn't know how to do it. You know what I mean? And like, even today it's like, you know, I like, I've never done this before, you know? And like, this is my first company of, of, of any, you know, you know, real material note, but it's like, it's so difficult to like, okay, like how do you raise money? You know? And I had good friends in there in, in Kevin Rose and Tony Fidel that helped me do it. And those guys are experts at it. You know, how do you create good content? Like, I don't know. We just did it, you know? And I think, not understanding how to do stuff is is really the biggest, biggest roadblock for me as an entrepreneur is like, how do you launch an app from zero? How do you create a, a YouTube channel from zero? How do you do any of this stuff? And like, you know, now I've done some of that and I would feel comfortable giving people advice and, and saying, okay, this is how we did it. I'm not going to say it's going to work for you, but it worked for me. And so again, it, it really wasn't fear. It was more about just not understanding what it, it takes to kind of be successful in, in, in those particular verticals. And again, I don't, I don't know that much more now than I did back then, but I, I know that like there are people out there that are willing to help you. And it would be about relying on those people to get stuff done. You know, Ben, looking back over all of the developments that Hooding he's had over the years, whether it be launching the shop or bringing in major brands as part of a retail strategy or, you know, now into insurance and Crown of Caliber and pre-owned and the rest, what are some that were simply way more work than somebody might expect from <laughs> kind of the outside? Well, all, all of it. You know, I mean, the, the, the <laughs> amount of hours I've spent on this is like, it's it's absolutely disgusting, uh, honestly. How, how much work we put into this over, over the time. But I think the, the, the biggest thing was the launch of authorized watches on, on Houdinki. And I think nobody really understands, even to this day, of what it really requires to get the approval and the and the acceptance and the support of brands to sell watches only online. You know, that there's very few peers, even today, Mr. Porter being obviously a big one, there's very few online exclusive, they're, they're called pure players by the Swiss, pure players of, of people that sell watches online. It requires so much understanding and so much kind of, you know, thought and so much kind of like, I don't, I don't want to call it kind of convincing, but really explaining your case in a way that is 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 really, really remarkable and, and just has to be incredibly tight and incredibly well, well thought through. And you have to jump through hoops that you might not think. And I think that was was really one of our most trying tests. And we've obviously validated many times over. You know, we launched with seven brands. We have, what, north of 40 now. So we know that it works. But, you know, those early days of being an authorized dealer on the internet were incredibly trying. And the ups and downs at some point, you know, we'll go into maybe when we write the book, if there ever is a book. But, you know, it's it's really remarkable, the, the amount of work that was put into that and still is to this day. And the man who has made it completely possible, you know, from the, the small little business we had when he joined to where we are today is 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 Russell for sure. And um, without him, we wouldn't be a fraction of, of where we are on, on the authorized dealer side for sure. It's an incredible amount of work, but you know, something that we're incredibly proud of because so many people have tried and so many people have failed to do that and we continue to succeed at it. So that, that definitely feels good and it makes it all feel worthwhile. I'll step in there and say, you know, that while I've come on board and, and helped drive things on a commercial level, I'll second what Ben said is it's the amazing people that we have within the Hodinkee organization that work their asses off to bring this stuff to life. So I think more than anything, it's all the hard work and all the care 
that people have for what Hodinky represents that allows us to have the success that we do. Yeah, I'm a. I mean, I'm I'm routinely jaw dropped by the the level of love and passion that we have on on the team here, and and as I get to meet more and more people from Crown and Caliber through Zoom meetings and stuff like that, it's all the same, which is really uh, supportive and, and a nice way to to know that that many people have your back when you come to work every morning. You know, Russell, for you looking back, you know, what would you say is kind of the biggest difference between the company now when when you started and, and where it is now? Is it the Crown and Caliber, which is kind of a fairly large personnel and physical difference? Or is it, do you think there's maybe a change in tone over to, over time? Well, I mean, to start, we don't pack and ship the watches on the kitchen table anymore. That's, that's <laughs> one thing. <laughs> I, mean, sure. I mean, so when, you know, when I started at uh, the beginning of 2019, we were still a really small team. And I think, you know, less than 20 people in the company at that time. And uh, and we had big plans and we worked really hard to realize those plans. But I think overall, again, it's looking at the size and I'm sure Ben, you you kind of, you know, have to shake your head now and then when you see how much we've grown, it's like looking around and seeing the number of people, the, the, the number of, of people that we have in the company today. And I think one of the things that I'm most proud of is that we are creating a, a, a great quality of life and a great culture and environment for these people to work in day in and day out. And and we couldn't do anything that we do without them. And it's just fantastic to see everybody growing and thriving people that have been here from the very beginning of Hodinkee to still today, to people that are joining the company now and bringing new enthusiasm. You know, it's just, you know, it's just really, really a fulfilling place and a meaningful place to come to work every day. I absolutely agree. It's been uh, it's been amazing to see the team develop over time and see people who who you think you you think you kind of had an understanding of what they were good at, and then it just turns out you can put them anywhere and they're good at just about anything. And there's a lot of people on the team like that, which uh, which is uh, always really fun to see. You know, I'm curious. You know, you guys both have your your finger on the pulse, both from a, a business standpoint, but also from an enthusiasm standpoint. This isn't really a business you get into just to fill out spreadsheets. I think I think it requires some love of the game. And uh, what do you guys figure the that is the next big thing in watches? I think people would be upset if I didn't at least ask. Oh man, that that's a complicated question. Where are we where are we go? Yeah, that that's it's so complex, right? I mean, like four years ago, everything everything was vintage watches. Like that that's what everyone cared about. Now, like you almost never hear about vintage watches. Like it's just not it's not what what's on the tip of everybody's tongue. You know, of of course, you know the the steel sports watch stuff is here. That's not going anywhere anytime soon. But I think it's important to remind people that you know. Five years ago, what was the six two six three big red Daytona selling for, and what's it selling for now? Right, and like that was kind of like the archetype of like the vintage watch, like the Daytona, you know, readily you know available, so you can always get the one. There's a market price, and like they've definitely softened up quite a bit. So I would just kind of keep that in mind as you think about the Nautiluses and Royal Oaks and and all that of the world. You know, something that I'm really encouraged by is the the rise in interest in independence, for sure. It's a really confounding market because it's so small, right? I mean, like, you know, how many watches does Moser make per year? How many watches does Jorn make per year? Like, very, very few. So it's really easy to manipulate, which is the scary part in it, for sure. And it's controlled by, you know, very, very small number of players, et cetera. But the one thing I will say, the absolute, you know, net positive of this is people that are doing things the air quotes right way 
are, are being rewarded. And, you know, the, the Max Boosers, the, the Mosers, the, the Gronfelds, the Dufours, certainly finally kind of getting, you know, the attention that, that they deserve from not just the nerds like us, but from people in general is really encouraging. And, you know, I, I think there's, there's some craziness to it. I think the Jorn market is absolutely bananas and I don't think that's sustainable. But I think, you know, the, the respect for Jorn, I think, is, is well-deserved and the respect for Dufour and Kari and Roger Smith and all those guys uh, is, is really neat. And I think we're going to see a lot more young guys and gals kind of following their footsteps of creating their own brands, doing things their own way. And we see it with Acrivia right now, who's one of the hot, you know, hottest watchmakers out there. Um, and, you know, that guy will do whatever he wants to do his way. And you got to love that, just like Jorn did or just like Dufour did or, or Roger Smith. You know, Roger Smith isn't taking any more orders at all right now. You know, I mean, like, is, is that does that make any sense from a fiscal perspective? Like, definitely not. But it's it's clear that, you know, he wants to continue to develop the technology that, that he thinks is is going to be, you know, really encouraging for the future of watchmaking. And you have to you have to respect that. So, you know, I think the future of watchmaking is bright in all categories. I think vintage will come back. I think, you know, pre-owned and, and the steel sports watch craze is real. I think we're starting to see a little bit of more interest in complications. You know, for the last 18 months, nobody kind of gave a about complicated watches and we're starting to see the guys gravitate a little bit you know they've had they've had every single 5711 5990 and blah 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 and now they're buying 5270ps and they're buying 5204s and ap and and, and longa complications etc uh, so i'm encouraged by that because like at the end of the day like that is real watchmaking no matter how cool an aquanaut is you know yeah, I mean, I, I have to second Ben that the focus or the interest in the independence is is super encouraging. I mean, these are watchmakers and and creatives that are doing what they do purely out of passion and purely out of uh, of love for what they're doing. And I think uh, you know that perfect example is is Rex Hep at, at Acrivia and really making a choice to stay small and stay intentional about what they do. And I think that that's something that's that's pretty amazing. And, and I think it's, I think it's great. It's like, you know, in, in my career, having the, having had the opportunity to work for Bonpon and work for Vacheron and, and being able to see those, those complicated workshops for the, are the complications that they create, you know, in a relatively large company in the Swiss watch industry. It's awesome to see some of that great stuff coming out of very, very small companies as well. But so I think to Ben's point, complications are, are on the rise, which I think is phenomenal because it's the thing that like hooked me in this industry was like really diving deep and learning about complications. And so I love to see that, uh, coming back to life. And, uh, and I just love to see the, uh, I love to see the creativity. I love to see what's, what's coming next. And, and I love to see the intentionality of staying small on purpose. I think that's great. For sure, no, I, I absolutely agree. Especially on the on the indie front, I think it's some of the most exciting stuff. I, I've I've really been enjoying watching the Jorn market explode, from like a, an armchair quarterback, you know, watching sales and and uh, auctions and stuff. It's very exciting to suddenly see this such a rapid expansion of uh, of value on something that you know hasn't changed. They've been great since they started, and and they're still great. But it's also it's not new. Like when you think of FB Jorn, how many years ago was it been that at one SIHH or Basel, he decided I'm not releasing anything new because I haven't filled the orders from last year. So I'm not releasing anything new until I fill these orders. And I think that that's, that was years ago. And that's kind of still what's happening today. And I think that's super cool. And do you guys see the Indies as sort of the current seat, the current throne of like true watchmaking? Or is that kind of a, a fallacy as any watchmaking watchmaking? It could be hugely industrial, vertical or integrated like uh, Seiko or Rolex or what do you figure? 
Maybe for the enthusiast? Well, I mean, it, it depends on, on what gets you going. I mean, look, I, I wear Grand Seiko. We did a limited edition with them. I, I wear Rolex mm-hmm. Omega. Like, those watches are wonderful. And those are absolutely real watchmaking. Like, no question about it. And, and those three brands in particular have really innovated at scale, which is, is frankly far more difficult to do than innovating, you know, at, 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 at a, in a small batch way. So a lot of respect for those those guys for sure. And at the end of the day, you know, when I'm the average day in my life, I'm not wearing a complicated watch at all. Maybe a date, you know, maybe a chronograph, something like that, usually self-winding. So, I mean, those are the watches that people live with. So that's kind of the most important. And I often say, like, the watches that people tend to, to gravitate to over time are, are typically not complicated watches. Those are the watches you want to live with. But if you're talking about, like, innovation and what is really exciting and really romantic about watchmaking, it's, it's definitely complicated watches. It is the Elong and Sonar. It is the AP Perpetual Calendar, which I know you love, James. You know, the, 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 the Patek 5270P, like, or, or in any metal, that, you know, a, a hand-wound perpetual calendar chronograph, like, it's still a really exciting type of watch to me. As as a nerd that grew up, you know, kind of dreaming about the twenty four ninety nine. So you know, I think it's it's just different things for different people, and it's just you know, it's like do, do you? I mean, a, a Toyota Camry is still a wonderful car. It doesn't get me excited, but like that's a great car to drive four hundred thousand miles, you know. And then a brand new Ferrari is also a great car. It gets me excited in a different way, and I think that's just it's the same thing with watches. Yeah. And we don't need to get into the whole like is there a bubble or not on the current values because I think that it's a more complicated thing than saying there's a bubble. But do you think we're going to see a market correction for some of these really remarkably you know, double price watches, watches that have one price at retail and have a, a multiple price when it, when it actually hits the market? Or is this just the reality, at least for the the medium term for this sort of market. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's so so hard to say. Right? Like fortune tellers are, are always correct. It just depends on how long you wait. You know, like if you're if you're willing to wait long enough, like things will come down. It could be fifty years, it could be hundred years. You know, it could be six months. It's hard to say. I I think there's still a ways to go with the watch market in general. You know, when you think I know James, you follow the market just like I do. When you look at a Gooding sale at Pebble Beach, like how many cars do they have that broke five million? Like a bunch. You know, mm-hmm. how often does a does a Rolex or tech break five million in auction, like very seldomly. So I think there's a long way to go. Do I think like the, the basic Daytonas, Royal Oaks, et cetera, have, have, have a long, long way to go up or down? I don't think so. I mean, I think the market has been pretty consistent for, for a good while now. And, you know, knowing AP and Rolex and Patek, like they're not going to, they're not going to bury those markets. Like they're not just going to unload a ton of those things to, to drive the prices down at all. So I think that they're relatively stable, but you know, again, what, what the hell do I know? Yeah. I think it's, it's all just kind of a guess. Because nobody could have predicted the pandemic and what that's done to pricing in houses, cars, art, watches. Pretty much anything you can buy is now more expensive than it was 18 months ago. And, and certainly that's definitely true for watches, especially watches that I would say are great watches, but maybe not classically interesting watches or rare watches. Like there seemed to have been the middle. The middle got this big lift. And, and that's where I think we might... I mean, I'm absolutely talking out of turn here, but that's where I think we might see a correction over time Mm -hmm. is, you know, the truly special stuff will always be special. And then the rest of it comes down to what's interesting and um, and, and what's kind of capturing people's fascination, which which brings me to, to one that I wish I had seen coming two years ago is Cartier. I mean, talk about a rise in just the number of conversations that we're having about Cartier as people who exist in the watch space. How, how do you guys, you think this has just been something that they were ignored for too long and they're finally getting what they deserve? Or is there something I might be missing? 
I think, I mean, if, you know, with, with, I would say, like, the upper echelons of elite watch collecting, Cartier has always been there. You know, the John Goldberger types, the Eric Koo types, et cetera. It's always been there. But I think, you know, there are so few of them. And as I've, as I've mentioned in previous episodes and certainly in the magazine, like, they are incredibly difficult to buy. There are so many fakes and so many just weird kind of like Franken watches out there. If you're talking about proper vintage, you know, pre-1969 vintage Cartier. So, you know, th- now what we're seeing is like not those watches, but the watches that were made after that, like 70s, 80s, really 90s and early 2000s uh, are really popping in a crazy way. And I think a big part of it is Cartier paying attention to that market and recreating those, those watches, the asymmetrique, uh, you know, the Bangoir, stuff like that. And so I think, you know, I think it's a, it's just a long time coming, but it feels a little bit like the independence, which is like, yeah, like no shit. Like vintage Cartier is amazing. Of course it should be heralded, you know, just like FP Jorn and Langa and Patek should be heralded. So yeah, I mean, I think vintage Cartier deserved this pop a, a long time ago. The, the the nouveau vintage stuff, the 90s stuff going for the crazy numbers it, it, it is right now, that's a little odd to me. You know, paying $300,000 for a watch made in the 90s from Cartier, like that, that's a... That that's a vibe I'm not sure I can get I can get down with to be honest. But that's not to say that the market isn't real and 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 not stable. So it's a complex one for me. Today I was looking at a 1970s uh, Cartier Jumbo that's on our uh, on our website and thinking, wow, it's such a nice watch. I mean, it just, is. Yeah, there's, I saw there's, that. There's sheer appreciation for what Cartier has done over time and the history of that uh, of that maison and everything that they've done uh, from not only a watchmaking standpoint but uh, just in general. Uh, I think as a as a legacy uh, manufacturer, so uh, I agree that I think that it's it's great to see you know some focus back on Cartier, say. But overall, I think uh, yeah, the vintage stuff is still what what gets me going in Cartier for sure. You know, speaking of things that that you know capture your guys' interest and such, uh, what are you guys excited about? What what gets you out of bed? Is it it doesn't like I said, it doesn't even have to watch. It's just something that lets people know a little bit more about you and and you know what's uh, what's on your mind. What's uh, what's the object of fascination for you guys today? I would say that right now, the the object of fascination for me right now is more an idea of being able to disconnect. And I think that that sometimes, you know, especially through everything that we've all gone through in the pandemic and being on screens more than we maybe want to, and just having the ability to kind of take the time to get on my bike and go for a long ride on the weekends to get in my, uh, you know, 94, 80 series land cruiser and go camping, going camping this weekend, combination camping, gravel cycling trip uh this weekend uh so that's going to be fun but i think that's really it it's like uh I, I really enjoy everything that i get to do day in and day out and i love everything that goes into kind of the watch culture that we all live uh, but i also love to be able to kind of check out and spend time with my family spend time outdoors getting some exercise and yeah that's really it yeah well i mean that's the plus of uh as as much as we operate in a way that this industry moves quickly and that we move quickly to respond to it. The actual industry moves pretty slowly. So you can, it is possible to disconnect and hopefully not miss something, you know, giant like you, you and, and, and I mean, to your, to your point earlier, you, you've got all these sport watches, you got to do something with them other than sit at, sit at a desk and work on your monitor tan. Yeah, that that's exactly it. And I think one of the things, and if we have to say something that I'm super pumped about when it comes to watches right now, oh, the last trip to Switzerland that we took, prior to the pandemic shut everything down was myself and Ben and Joe Thompson 
and Cara were in Switzerland and we, and we went to Omega and Reynald, we, we had a great visit with Reynald and he took us through the 321 workshop, the manufacturer, oh, nice. where they're assembling 321 Ed White Speedies one by one. And it was just one of the most kind of romantic evenings that we had with in a watch manufacturer. And I look back on that and I think it's so, it, it was such an amazing experience. So I'm super pumped on seeing Ed White's hit the market eventually. I've got my eyes on one. You never know. Maybe, maybe I can scoop one up, but who knows? Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting word to use to describe a watch manufacturer romantic. It's not what I would typically... I mean, it depends on the manufacturer for sure. But with Omega scale, you would expect clinical or or you know, very uh, accurate and astute. But it's, it's interesting, especially with that watch, because that is a watch that's almost exclusively... Its appeal is based in the romanticism of the era in which it's based. Absolutely. Uh, so that, that's a, an interesting thing. And also a shout out to Joe Thompson. Joe, I don't know if you're listening, but I miss you and I love you a lot. So do I, Joe. You're a king. Uh, ben, how about you? Where to begin? I mean, you know, there's there's so much stuff that is kind of like holding my interest these days. Obviously in watches, there, there's always stuff. And I'm, I'm finding myself like, you know, definitely interested in, in a lot of independent stuff. You know, uh, not surprisingly, I'm a huge fan of, of Roger Smith and everything that he does. And I think kind of him not being Swiss and myself also not being Swiss, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of connects us in, in, in a certain way. Um, so really a fan of, of everything that he's doing. And I'm in kind of more constant contact with him than, than ever before. So really kind of going down that rabbit hole, finding some vintage watches that I've always wanted and never been able to. I actually bought a vintage watch from Hodinkee uh, this week or last week. Haven't paid for it yet. Sorry about that, Russell. Come on. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I promise I'm good for it. Um <laughs> But, you know, finding some stuff that, like, I always kind of wanted and, in fact, like, kind of completes a circle uh, for me in some ways and, and, and us at Hodinkee. And, and then, you know, out, outside of watches, you know, look, I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I'm not a total vintage car nut. And I spend more time probably looking at, at vintage cars on the Internet than, than, than watches at this point. Uh, really into golf these days. Uh, I'm really into my Aura Ring, which I know at least some of you guys know what that is. Oh, yeah, nice. like, it's like a sleep tracker. Yeah, yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a huge, huge kind of sleep nerd now, so I really focus on on getting good night's sleep and and really kind of like you know you know kind of pulling the right levers to get to a point where like I'm I'm approaching 90 and above uh, my sleep score uh, which is incredibly nerdy but like I've really found has really you know kind of changed the way that I approach my day so all all sorts of stuff yeah I mean I I the first one that comes to mind is with with Roger you know it's fun because I recently got a chance to actually sit down and have like a my first kind of long chat with uh, Roger Smith uh, for an upcoming article in the in the magazine in the next issue of Hoodinky Magazine, and he's not like anyone else I've ever met in this industry. Certainly not somebody with his level of like fame and acumen and attention. It, it, it's just like when you t- it's a lot. The conversation was a lot like the ones you have at those great car meetups, where you know you would tell me, "Oh, Saturday morning we're going here for breakfast and then going for a drive," and I would tag along, not really knowing who else was coming along. This is in the New York area. And you'd meet these folks, and and sometimes there's people I'd met once or twice, maybe at, at a thing where you say hi and introduce yourself, and then never get any deeper. And you end up having these kind of pseudo deep conversations that ping off of all the things that we're interested in. And it was the same with Roger. He's a, he's a delightful guy, really, really, uh, really a pleasure to to chat with. And I mean, the work stands for itself. We don't have to. Uh, we certainly don't have to qualify that. I, I am curious, and we can save it for a future episode if you'd rather. But uh, what some of the some of the watches that you'd picked up that kind of completed that circle? 
Anything you want to talk about? Sure. I'm, I'm really referring to one uh, that, that really completed a circle and that I, I finally bought an original Hoyer Skipper. And I bought it through Houdinki. Uh, it, it was, it's an amazing watch. It was actually offered to Crown & Caliber, which is amazing, by a gentleman that actually bought the watch new in Paris in 1970. Uh, so an original owner of Hoyer Skipper. Oh, wow. And, you know, those watches are so special. And obviously, like, that was the watch that we referenced when we did our first and maybe most popular limited edition, you know, four or five years ago with our own Skipper. Uh, and I've always wanted one, but I always, you know, I mean, you, I've, I've kind of long extolled the benefits or my interest anyway in buying like original owner watches. And like, that's just how I want to buy product the, these days, whether it's a car or a watch, honestly, it's just so that there's no funny business. And this watch came directly from the original owner uh, through Crown and Caliber. And I didn't even know it was coming in until Brandon and Sori and, and, and Rich on our team uh, mentioned it to me. And I just, I bought it on the spot. Uh, and so, you know, I'm a, a hardcore Hoyer lover, vintage Hoyer lover. The Carreras in particular, the early hand-wound ones are, are just watches I love. Love. I've got a 2447N that I've had since the early, early days of, of Hodinkee. Um, and this, again, kind of closed the loop for me. And to be able to buy it from us, effectively, who, who got it from the original owner, I think is is really compelling. And like, it's it's not the cleanest example. It's never been polished, but like, it's not the cleanest example from a dial perspective, but it's totally earnest. And I think that is really, again, what, what drives my interest in, in watches and cars today. Like, it doesn't have to be mint, 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 A++. And in fact, like the, the likelihood of a 50-year-old watch or car being mint, 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 A++ is so low that it actually makes me suspicious of it, you know? So this watch having a little bit of fading on the dial, et cetera, uh, you know, is, is really what I look for because you know it's it's real. Uh, so extremely excited about about finally getting a, a Hoyer Skipper for sure. Ben scooped it up so quickly and I haven't even gotten to see it yet. So um, <laughs> I look <laughs> I look forward to hopefully seeing it one day. Ben, the, the colors, they age fairly nicely from what I've seen is that is that because mm-hmm. it is kind of a colorful watch and and sometimes colors kind of disappear but uh, from what I've seen in those vintage ones even ones that have seen some sun and such uh, have lived a life they uh, they certainly age age nicely so if you're going to have one with a bit of wear on it yeah they they do and I think like you know I've you know for years and I mean truly years I've been going back and forth with Jeff Stein about you know they, there's been a bunch at auction and selling for a hundred grand plus etc would I ever go for something like that ultimately I decided against it you know the ones that that do the best are the ones that do have the brightest richest colors um, to me again I have. I, I don't have concerns about those, but I, you know, it's not necessarily what what I am after. The watch that I was able to purchase has amazing, amazing rich colors, but it, it looks old. And again, that that's really what I'm looking for here. And you know, and and I, I look, we we know the owner of this watch. Like, there's no issues here at all, for sure. Never been serviced by Dag Hoyer, no doubt. And you know, so again, I this is the perfect kind of level of of patina on, on a watch like this for me. Yeah, very cool. Well, look, guys, I uh, I think that's basically the show. Uh, it was a treat to have you both on, literally a treat. This was uh, so much fun to catch up with both of you and get a little bit of time, Russell, you and I, especially since I'm not in New York. And now, you, of course, you're not in New York these days. We don't have these overlaps that occasionally meant we could share a cup of coffee or something like that. So this is a real treat. It's a pleasure to see both of you. And I, I appreciate you spending some time on the show. Anyone listening, if you have questions for Russell, Ben, myself, drop them in the comments. And otherwise, if you're enjoying the show, please tell a friend. Thanks so much for listening. 